Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I suppose this is kind of the ideal show from my point of view, because even if I weren't doing a show, it would make sense to me and give pleasure to me to sit down with my old friend, David Edelstein, and just talk about the year in movies. And we do this sometimes, and we try to make it as much as possible, like you're just sitting, you know, one table over from us at a restaurant or something and hearing us talk about movies, which means that he'll probably be bugging me and complaining about me and all the things that he's been doing all these decades. But it's been an interesting year in movies. He's got a lot of interesting things to say about some of those movies. So, yeah, join us for a conversation right after this. Okay, so we should be doing the nose, or we sometimes would be doing the nose uh, right at this particular moment. Assuming that this gets on the air on Friday, I no longer have any control over the schedule of this show or what we're doing. But what we're doing right now that you're going to hear at some point is recording a show involving something that I really love doing, which is just talking with my friend David Edelstein, America's greatest living film critic, about movies, and particularly about what kind of year it's been. What has 2019 been uh, at the movies? Uh, Critics are coming out with their 10 best lists and things like that. Critics, including David, uh, are doing that. But to me, it's not just that. You know, it's the things that were maybe a little bit more disappointing, things you might have looked forward to that weren't as great, things that kind of fell in the middle, things that were really unexpectedly horrible or expectedly horrible. In a new category that I'm inventing this year, which is, at least for me, a movie I didn't see and the act of not seeing the movie is a very specific kind of event in my own life. So uh, with uh, with no further ado, uh, it's time to talk to David Edelstein, who's joining us from studios in New York, the wonderful Argo Studios in New York, not connected to the movie of the same name. David, welcome back. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So uh, were you... uh, Overall, in 2019, a happy moviegoer? Were there, were, there, were there enough things to kind of hang your hat on to get excited about so that you felt pretty good about the year? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> I'm, I had an embarrassment of riches in terms of, as I do most years, but I think what we saw with exhibition um, is, um, is very, very frustrating. Um, you know, Martin Scorsese, I know you talked about this a great deal on your show, dared to come out and say that movies were somewhat poorer because one giant squid corporate entity had basically taken over not only all the multiplex screens, but increasingly more and more of the means of, of distribution and exhibition. And was we're making, uh, I won't call them cookie cutter films, but I'll say they're the same the same genre, uh, they all have the same ending, they all build to the same things, they have the same beats, and of course the uh, the nerds, the Marvel nerds, the DC nerds got on him, and he was uh, unquestionably right. Um, I'm not going to 
sit here and dump on Marvel films because not too many miles from where you're sitting in the studio, I I would sit as a boy and watch every terrible Flash Gordon or Buck Rogers serial I could. When I found out that they had made a Fantastic Four movie and they buried it, it was some sort of tax dodge or something having to do with the rights to the comic, I pursued it and pursued it. I don't know that anybody's ever seen it, but the idea that you know someone would make a movie with the Fantastic Four, it was so cool. I just never dreamed a day would come along when it, those movies would crowd everything out of the marketplace and cost... 200 million to make, you know, with a promised return of 1 billion and nobody would want to make 30 million dollars anymore that could make 60 million. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yes, and it's, obviously there's sort of a pincer movement here. On the one hand, you've got Mar- Marvel and other comic book franchises dominating the marketplace. On the other hand, you have um, Netflix, which is exhibiting uh, some of the more artistically interesting movies uh, on a limited number of screens and for a shorter amount of time. But since you brought up Mar- Marty Scorsese uh, and he- and his critique— you know, then he has to put up or shut up. So he released uh, The Irishman. Let's hear a little clip. You're going to hear Al Pacino as Jimmy Hoffa, Robert De Niro as uh, Frank Sheeran. Uh, I believe this is like the two old guys uh, sitting around in their pajamas in the hotel room talking. I want you to run for president of Local 326. You're like family to me, Frank, you know. You, Irene, the girls, the lovely Peggy. But that's not why I'm doing this. I'm not giving you anything you didn't earn, you didn't deserve. What do you think? I'm, I'm, I, I don't know what to say, Jimmy. I mean, I mean, I'm. I just I'm, say you do it. That's all you gotta say. Because I can guarantee you're gonna win. <laughs> ah, when you run for president of three twenty-six, you're gonna win. I guarantee you. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'll do it, yeah. You mean it, yeah? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm on it. I love you. I just love you, you know. Come here. I love you, man. I can't tell you. Oh, gee. Oh, this is so good, you know. I, I feel like I can breathe again. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, David Edelstein, you have um, over cheeseburgers more than one time, I think, discussed the work of Martin Scorsese with my son, who's kind of a Scorsese fan. But he loves Mean Streets. He loves Casino. He loves, you know, he loves Goodfellas. He couldn't get through this movie. Uh, and I, 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 you know, he tried to watch it at home on Netflix. Uh, and I, I chastised him for not playing it all the way through its full three and a half hours. But I, I don't know. Did did Scorsese deliver on his on his promise of great cinema? I dispute your um, your premise here. Okay. I don't think Scorsese has any obligation to put up or shut up. The okay. director of uh, uh, the director of Taxi Driver and Mean Streets and Raging Bull uh, and a lot of other movies has no obligation to give us any more masterpieces, and yet he has. <laughs> yep. Now, admittedly, this is an old man's movie. It is really probably the worst thing that you're going to convince the uh, Marvel the Marvel fanboys <laughs> with uh, of all the movies. I mean, if he had given us another Raging Bull, that would have been different. But he is an old man. This is an old man's movie. It is a movie about, oh, what is it about? It's about guilt. It's about 
paralysis in a certain way, moral paralysis, if if not physical, although it becomes about physical paralysis too. I mean, it it opens in a Catholic convalescent home where the hero is stuck in a, a wheelchair. And, you know, there are just people who will see that and it's and say, this movie is not going anywhere. I want to go with it. Um, it's paced very, very slowly. It's very garrulous. I think it's uh, enormously affecting. But again, we're looking at this new model now of exhibition. And I would not have wanted to see it for the first time on television, mm-hmm. uh, on, on my TV screen, however big. Um, I would have wanted to sit in a movie theater where I where my attention was trained on the screen and I was – Yes, I'll use the word forced to watch it because there are great works of art that you don't necessarily want to have competing with your with your bed, with your sofa, with your refrigerator, with your bathroom, with your telephone. Um, and that's just the nature of theatrical exhibition versus at home. I, I now, when I'm watching something for work, uh, put the remote control across the room. So that I'm not going to be, I'm not going to drift off. I'm not going to be tempted at any point to pause and go back. And but I have to pay attention to it as if there were a real live projectionist or whatever, whatever they are nowadays because they're not projecting. They're robots. They're, yes, uh, if, as if there were somebody there showing the movie, and I was not going to have a chance to go back. There's just a different kind of investment, and I'm not saying that the the, the window, the gap is closing between the two media. But it's not closing that much. I still don't want to see that movie first on the home screen. Right. I, t- I utterly agree. And I, I did see it in, in the movie theater. And I also feel as though I went back and I watched Goodfellas again. And, you know, it's almost like Scorsese morally had to make this movie. Because Absolutely. The, you know, at the end of Goodfellas, the last thing we see is Ray Liotta. He's been relocated. Henry Hill has been relocated uh, to a new place. And he just says how much he misses his he old life. He misses the rush. Yeah, he misses, he misses the, rush. the rush. He has to wait in line like everybody else now. You know? And so, and that's pretty much the last sentiment that's uttered in Goodfellas is this terrific thing was taken away from him. So you almost have to make this movie to say, no, ultimately, this, here's where this ends. You have that's nothing. Right. You have nothing. That's right. And in a way, it's it's Scorsese. I mean, I'm not going to say it's an auto-critique because Scorsese's probably very proud of Goodfellas. But he... It seems to me if Scorsese wanted to stage the killings uh, in this movie in a much more sensational, flashy, showstopper way, he could very well have done so. He has certainly done that in the past. Instead, we don't get the whip pans. We don't get the Rolling Stones songs. We don't – we get what is in fact very blunt, very ugly, uh, arrhythmic, um, awkward – uh, and and full of sort of disgust and regret afterwards. Um, it, it's a it's a movie for it's a gangster movie for people who are in a way have moved beyond gangster movies and are thinking about much larger, maybe more metaphysical or certainly more religious questions. And that's just not sorry, Marvelites. That's just not something I think you're prepared to grapple with right now. And, and you know, say it, what you will. Maybe I'm a snob, but um, but I like it. I like it right now. 
Ant-Man often wonders what it's like. To, what, it, what does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be a person of limited lifespan? I think okay, I, now wait a minute. Now, you see, I like Ant-Man. Paul Rudd can be in anything. I, I adore the guy. And he's, he is every bit as sweet off screen, I can say, having met him once, uh, as he is on screen. Um, I just feel that... Um, uh, like I said before, it's a matter it's a matter of degree. You don't have the reason that Netflix has been able to swoop in and Amazon has been able to swoop in is that they've made so many billions, if not trillions, off this new medium, this new this new way of accessing entertainment that now they are able to fund. Uh, all sorts of artists who the Hollywood studios are not funding anymore. And on one level, I want to say, that's fantastic. And on another level, I want to say, hey, you can all, I'm talking about the Irishman right now. We're going to talk about Marriage Story. You guys can actually go and watch these things right now. You don't have to wait months and months if they come at all. Now, you're lucky in Hartford that there are a number of really first-rate, first-rate, quote-unquote, art house theaters there. But a lot of places in the country, there aren't. And it's very difficult uh, to to access some of these films the way you can. On the other hand, what are they doing with these films? Mm-hmm. What are they doing with them? It's just they just become part of the mix in a way that movies never have been before. Some could say that's good mm. because everybody was talking about The Irishman before it hit. And then when it hit, everybody else who was seeing it for the first time wanted to rush in and give their opinions. Mm -hmm. That's happening now with Marriage Story. That happens with many movies that are going this route. And maybe down the road, that will that will prove to be a very a very rewarding thing. All right, so I don't know yet. since you mentioned Marriage Story, let's talk about that. That didn't make your top ten list. Um, I just it wouldn't have made my top fifty list. <laughs> my top hundred list. <laughs> I feel like Noah is not one of your favorite directors anyway. Um, well, I don't I don't know Noah, yeah. uh, so I I don't have anything against him personally, except the personality that I discern through his movies, which is. Um, uh, you know, it's it's weird for me to call somebody else a snob when I'm here making fun of Marvel <laughs> fans and and uh, dismissing all these things. But I'm I'm not a film director, obviously. I find his uh, sour self pity in in effect even in this film too. So we should first of, first of all, just set this uh, stage here. This Please. is a a story which chronicles uh, a, a divorce. Uh, the uh, married married couple is played by Adam Driver who's like sort of in everything basically now and Scarlett Johansson. Uh, there are some other kind of terrific in my opinion supporting performances especially by Alan Alda who's now Absolutely. on long enough but he's just unbelievably Absolutely. cool as maybe the one lawyer. The, Ray Liotta speaking of good fellas oh, is, is the shark. Yeah, he's amazing the amazing performance. And Laura Dern All is the, the other supporting show. performance. Yeah. yeah. So and so, but basically, what you see is it kind of takes you from Halloween to Halloween, about a year's time. Uh, you see this couple had, who have already decided to divorce. The very first thing you you hear are a marriage counselor or a mediator, I guess, has asked them to list the good qualities of the other person. That's the first thing that you see, and then you go through this process uh, of you know, like a pretty familiar looking divorce process. So. It wouldn't have made your top 50. That's a brilliant opening. The opening is, is in many ways, I think, the, the note of genius in the film because it starts out with them uh, celebrating each other mm-hmm. because this uh, sort of touchy-feely mediator, not a divorce lawyer, not somebody who is, you know, who, who wants to work this out in a, in a very grown-up way, 
is having them say what they what they love about each other uh, as as a parent and as a spouse, and um, it's it's um, it really takes you back. And it, there's a generosity of spirit there that I don't see in operation in the rest of the movie because the rest of the movie is about essentially how all these terrible shallow people and the legal system itself grinds these two noble individuals, flawed but but essentially noble individuals down. So they are the those characters have some stature. They have some um they have great depth and humanity. All those other characters, with the possible exception of Alan Alda, are are really uh, caricatures. Now they're brilliant, brilliant little satires of the people who may be involved in this kind of divorce case. But it does seem to me there's a, there's a kind of disconnect there and a kind of snobbery at work through everybody in the film that, you know, isn't Adam Driver or Scarlett Johansson. The, the question that I had at the end that I think maybe does get kind of close to that that's not a question. So the director is Noah Baumbach. I don't know if I ever said that. But so um, one of the things that you see repeatedly is that the Halloween is kind of a framing device uh, in, in this movie. And you repeatedly see these scenes uh, of these parents. And, and it's, you know, these are very show busy people. He's an avant-garde director who's starting to enjoy some mainstream uh, success. A MacArthur uh, genius. Um, and a MacArthur he's a, he's genius. He's a certified genius. Right. That's and, right. Noah Baumbach makes his alter ego a certified genius. And and she's uh, a, an actor who's now starting to direct, but in Hollywood, uh, in, in L.A., and so the whole thing is very kind of bi-coastal. And I kind of did have the Nancy Meyer problem that I have. You know, with Nancy Meyer's uh, rom-coms are always about these people who have these fabulous houses and fabulous incomes and fabulous accessories. And I just think, well, like, don't you know, average middle class people fall in love. And there was a little bit of that here, you know, that they were in some ways living a life that mirrors the life of the people who made the movie. I think in some ways it mirrors it, in some ways it doesn't. I think it's a very, uh, in some ways, cutting, affectionate, but cutting portrait of Jennifer Jason Lee. All the biographical details fit, but Bombach has let himself off the hook. His alter ego is, in fact, more sinned against than sinning. Uh, he had an affair w- one night stand with a with a stage manager after his wife would not sleep with him for a year. Basically, he doesn't really want this divorce in the same way. He's forced to leave his comfortable New York and his th- beloved theater troupe and be in this uh, sterile condo uh, alone, no friends. And suffer the indignity of of all these lawyers. It really is a poor little me portrait. You would, you would. He's telling a a largely true story while omitting uh, some of the key details, autobiographical details. Now, I know it shouldn't have to be true to life in order to be a good movie. I just felt there was something missing, something very emotionally dodgy about the film that happened to fit. Uh, with the absence of those certain biographical details. And rather than being smarmy and and tease you, uh, you know, Noah Baumbach did fall in love with Greta Gerwig, and he says that it didn't happen on the set of Greenberg, which his wife, Jennifer Jason Lee, was also in. But, um, you know, you can believe that or not, but it, it certainly started up pretty immediately, and they've been, uh, apart from making their own movies, pretty inseparable ever since. And... Um, 
the absence of that character, the absence of another character, uh, you know, like like that in his life, I think you know is intended to make you feel much sorry, sorrier for the guy than you actually should be feeling. All right. So, um, uh, just before we go to our first break. Maybe we should just pause and say this was the year of certain things. I think one of the things it was the year of, for good or ill, was the year of Adam Driver. I mean, he's kind of everywhere you look. Uh, you know, I mean, he's he's become a big force in the Star Wars franchises, but he was also in The Dead Don't Die. He's in another either Netflix or Amazon film called The Report, which I haven't I seen. I think he's actually, I think he's better in The Report than he is in Marriage Story, although I think he's wonderful in Marriage Story. Yeah, I mean, he I, also, I saw him on stage, I saw him on stage here on Broadway in a revival of Burn This, yeah. not not a particularly good play. He actually had not a very good performance from Carrie Russell, who I don't know if you were as addicted to the Americans, but I, I think she's just one of the great actresses out there. I know, I'm sorry. A, I was addicted to the Americans, and I also have a separate and less wholesome addiction to Carrie Russell. But, you know, so... Uh. <laughs> well, she was, I mean, she, it was a very poised and good performance. It didn't make sense in the context of the play. Adam Driver... First of all, he's a huge guy. He really has a lot of stature as an actor. He's got good equi- – that's going to sound terrible. I was going to say good equipment. But um, he – equipment. You know, actors yeah. talk about their instrument. You right. know, he has – his voice carries his body, although it's, it's big and it's kind of lumbering, is very expressive. And he has presence. And um, and he really hit that out of the park and, a, and gave a very different kind of performance than John Malkovich gave in the original production. Um, so I think he's I think he's the real thing. He's he's one of the weirdest looking. You know, he's like a Modigliani or a Picasso <laughs> painting. He's you know one of the weirdest looking heartthrobs you're ever going to see. And hey, more power to him for that, uh, because he's got he just seems very very centered on stage and on film. You just want to look at him and see what he's thinking. All right. So um, we're going to take a little break here. We're talking to David Edelstein, America's Greatest Living Film Critic, a reader's work in New York Magazine. We'll take a break and we'll come back. Someone to hold you too close. Someone to hurt you too deep. Someone to sit in your chair, to ruin your sleep. That's true. But there's more than that. Is that all you think there is to it? You have so many reasons for not being with someone, Robert, but you have one good reason for being alone. All right, we're back. We're talking about the year in movies with America's greatest living film critic, David Edelstein. So you know, maybe it's time to turn our attention to, and, and I think one of the oddities of the way movies are released these days is, you know, a lot of movies get seen in smaller doses by and often by critics. And I, I'm looking at everybody's lists right now. And there are all these movies that not only haven't I seen, but I really hadn't even heard of. Uh, and, and so there are a few on your list that I think might be worth mentioning. Very near the top of your list is the movie Diane, which your your support of it is my first acquaintance with it. So tell us, this is a Mary oh. Kay Place film, right? Well, it's a, it's a, the first fictional film by Kent Jones, who's known as a very gifted, um, idiosyncratic film critic, uh, and also uh, has been running for the last uh, seven or eight years the New York Film Festival. Very, very well known in the film community. He began branching off into making uh, documentaries under the auspices of Martin Scorsese. He made a documentary about Val Luton, um, the uh, great sort of B. 
a movie producer of Cat People and Leopard Man and The Body Snatchers. And, and he's done and he, and he made a film based on the Hitchcock Truffaut dialogue. So he's pretty well known here in these parts. But I was unprepared for this film about a woman, uh, middle aged, maybe a little bit older than middle aged woman who uh, has a son who is addicted to drugs and whose life consists basically of driving around her her small um, community. It's supposed to be set in Massachusetts, in maybe southern Massachusetts, sort of near the Cape, but it's actually was shot in uh, upstate New York and looked like that to me. Um, going around bringing food to people, working in soup kitchens, as people all around her slowly die. <laughs> and uh, it sounds horribly depressing, and a lot of people think it is very depressing. I th I thought it was absolutely beautiful and exhilarating as she she tried to take stock of, of her life and also to expiate some sins that she committed in her in her younger days. Uh, it made me cry. I've seen it three times. Um, it's a it's a beautiful, unsparing film, and and she has an opportunity to do things she's never done on screen before. Um, there's a very fun supporting cast: uh, Estelle Parsons, uh, Andrea Martin, um, people you would recognize. Um, it, it's it's just it's such a full and rich movie. Now, where can you see it? I don't know. I probably <laughs> should have. Uh, uh, I probably should have looked that up. It probably didn't come to to theaters in in Hartford. I don't think uh, it, it has played it, on the screen here yet. It barely played. Uh, it barely played in New York, but it ought to be accessible somewhere. Again, it's Diane. That's the character's name. I really want you to watch it. Don't don't commit suicide uh, after you see it. It's it's actually think about it a while. It's a. I think it's a it's a it's a ultimately an uplifting movie. Uh, if you kind of go in expecting the worst. All right. So another movie that I promised you last night that I would watch last night and then I didn't, which, you know, that's me, I guess. Um, but which I believe did play here on one of those art screens that you talked about before at Real Artways uh, is Honeyland. Um, this is a, a documentary, I believe, uh, and it takes place. Well, I, why don't you tell us about Honeyland? <laughs> you know, I, I'm fitting in right here into all the cliches of the film, of the, the film critic cliches. Dumping on Marvel, and now I'm going to talk up a uh, a uh, non-narrative Macedonian documentary <laughs> set in the uh, set set in the wilds of Macedonia with a uh, uh, an aging Turkish beekeeper. Uh, it really sounds like a cliche. It sounds like a, this is a parody of an art film. Uh, it's not. It's an absolutely transporting. I'm sorry if you have to watch it on on, uh, on a small screen now because it has had its theatrical life. Uh, it's won a number of critics' awards and has a fair chance. I think it certainly will be nominated for an Oscar. Whether it will win, uh, it may not be timely enough. But it's about a woman who all her life has lived in this I don't know if it's a yurt, but actually it's a it's a stone it's some sort of stone underground uh edifice. It's in the side of a cave. And uh she tends bees and she really does become kind of at one with the bees and the landscape. And she really understands the life cycles of these bees and produces apparently fabulous honey that's a little more expensive, which he takes uh which he takes to market every month. 
Um, and it's about the, the, the plot such as it is. There are some kind of Turkish, I wouldn't call them gypsies, but they're kind of roving bee herders who kind of move in and mess up the landscape. And all her bees end up dying. And um, ah. yeah, it's a very – and it's very – it, it kind of works at the same time as a, as a metaphor of what's happening to the, the natural world and to the, the rhythms of the natural world. And we know that bees are imperiled. Nobody actually – the movie's not narrated, so we don't see, we don't see that – um, anybody talk about that, but it's implicit. And these filmmakers, uh, two two women uh, filmmakers, um, spent years following her around to get these, I think, very poetic, evocative um, uh, 90 minutes. And I think if you sit and you watch it and you put the remote across the room and you tune into this, I think this movie will just fill you with joy. Uh, and, and pain and sadness. And this woman will, will acquire, I use the word stature a lot because that's what you want in a character, right? I mean, in a protagonist. I, I think I, I could not recommend this film more highly. Honeyland, one word. All right. So if it makes you feel any better, your friend and colleague, uh, A.O. Scott, I think he picked it as the best movie of the year, too. So it's not like you're, you know, out on, no, a, I, 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 yeah. on a limb uh, there. That makes me doubt my uh, doubt my judgment there. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Ao, no, Ao is a is a is a fine fellow, but he he embodies the sort of woke critic uh, of our time. But however, I should say in his defense, he was woke before it was called woke, right? And I think it comes right from the heart, and he's done a lot to in his position in his pulpit from his bully pulpit to um to drive certain kinds of movies especially by women and african-american directors he's just a little you know he's the sort of guy who if he goes to see a romanian movie set in the carpathians and there are no black characters he'll complain about it and Oh, I don't know. I yeah, don't but know. he was, as you say, he was woke before woke was cool. He was woke before woke, you know. All it right. was, uh, you know, and, and, and a fine fellow. But I do question you, you saying that. I didn't know that. I do then question my choice. No, don't question your choice. So let's actually uh, go from the somewhat obscure movies that we were just talking about to your choice. And, the, and I know these lists are artificial, and I know that you don't like making them very much. I but... hate making them because they're all – I look back on them. I go back 10 years, 20 years, and I think they're all wrong. And they're not wrong by what in what I said about the films. They're wrong about the rankings. Oh, this should have been one instead of three. This should have been five instead of seven. And it's like who cares? What's important is what you say about a film, what you, how you respond to it, what it conjures up in you. And, and, you know, anybody can rank. And I don't mean that in an elitist sense. I mean, you can just whip off, you know, your 10 favorite foods right now. And we, we could all go around with our, with our 10 best lists, you know, tattooed to our forearms. And, and I don't know that any of us would be any better for it. All right. So so with all of that in mind, uh, <laughs> notwithstanding everything that has just been said, the envelope, please, the, uh, the, what occupies the number one position in David Edelstein's end of the year list is the following. Five years of ascent, <laughs> 10 years of, 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 of treading water now, race to the bottom. <laughs> Look, I never had much career to speak of, so I can't say I really know how you feel talking about you're, you're you're a stunt double come on now rick i'm your driver man i'm i'm your gopher 
I'm not complaining, man. I like driving you around. I like doing shit around the house and house sitting in the Hollywood Hills when you're gone. But I haven't been a full-time stuntman for a while now, and from where I'm standing, going to Rome to star in movies does not sound like the fate worse than death that you seem to think it is. Come on now, you you ever seen a, 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 an Italian western? Huh? They're awful. It's a farce. Yeah, how many you see? One, two. I've seen enough. All right. Nobody likes spaghetti westerns. The real Don Steele, Simon Mrs. Robinson. Okay, that's Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. A couple of news bulletins that have come to me while we've been doing this. First of all, Diane, the Mary Kay Place film that we were talking about a little while ago, is rentable on iTunes and on Amazon. So you can do that kind of thing. And uh, also, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Quentin Tarantino movie, a clip of which we just heard featuring Leo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, is not only occupying the number one uh, position for David Edelstein, but also for producer Jonathan McPants as well. (laughs) So, uh, so go ahead, uh, lift our spirits, or tell us why you love this movie. What about the film? Well, I'm I'm a fan of Tarantino in general, though not of his last maybe two or three movies, uh, Django Unchained and The Hateful Eight. I it, it seemed like he was really regressing. The best thing about Tarantino is he doesn't just make movies he wants to see. He makes movies he wants to somehow live inside and maybe that he has lived inside in his fantasies. I, with very few other filmmakers, well, there are filmmakers who you feel like they're piping it in from their unconscious, like David Lynch. But with Tarantino, it's all filled with 60s bric-a-brac and old movies bric-a-brac and cultural references, but not in a in a sort of esoteric way, in a way that just... I'm sure it makes him smile and laugh and and uh, you know I've said this before uh, self pleasure however you want to term it there's a that quality in his films um this is a fantasia of Hollywood in the 60s in which the sort of 50s loner cowboy figure was fading the counterculture with its hippies and mansonites was was rising values were were kerfluey and it's a it's a somewhat reactionary fantasy of going back and changing history. I won't spoil it for people, but but one of the seminal events of the um, of the late '60s. Some people say the counterculture died the night that uh, Sharon Tate and her house guests were were butchered for uh, for no reason. Not that there's any reason ever to butcher anybody, but really for no reason by this these whacked out uh, Manson family members. Uh, he reimagines that and uh, comes up with a very, very different and both exhilarating and kind of heartbreaking ending. Um, I thought the movie was pure pleasure. Just one long, distended, overlong, I would say, scene after another in which you just hang out with these people who talk so beautifully and uh, embody these people that you think you know but are always surprising you at every turn. I just I, – I, I loved it so much and no one else could have made this movie. There was nothing in this movie that anybody but Quentin Tarantino could have made. And what performances, you know, down to the smallest ones. But obviously Brad Pitt and Leo DiCaprio, their rapport on screen. And Brad Pitt playing this this kind of loyal dog who also has his own pride, his own sort of prickly pride. Uh, and the man looks absolutely gorgeous. I mean, he is 
what is he what what is he drinking uh to make well actually he he drinks and smokes a lot but uh, <laughs> somehow or other he keeps his i met him i met him once and the guy reeked of tobacco and other substances but he was very nice hmm. um you know, so, I, th- uh, I think this is a good year for Brad Pitt in a lot of different ways. I think uh, it's also the case that uh, the, um, the the last man in San Francisco um, wouldn't have gotten made. Uh, last black right. man in San Francisco uh, wouldn't have gotten made because, but he saw it at a festival and optioned it, and, and so he's done exactly. a, done a lot of good. And I also totally agree that this is a film full of sensory pleasure, and it's so immaculately curated in that obsessive Tarantino way that you know oh, any, the colors. It's like at the soundtrack too. It's yes, just a, any song that's little playing little bits of commercials yeah. and songs. And right, you're really it's it's a time machine to a time that never was. Right. Only in our imaginations, but but it's 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 intact. It's full. It has a fullness to it. That that world that he conjures. Yeah, any song that's playing on the radio in a car was like playing on the radio at that time of day. Or I mean, you know, you, you have to kind of admire that level of meaning. Even if it wasn't, you want it to be. You right. believe that it was. So I, so I love that. But I think that I'm going to argue for my number one film is the film that I think is an interesting um, companion to The Irishman in the sense that it's a film in which the characters ask questions about what it means to be who they are, what it means to live in this particular kind of existence, and whether or not there are other choices that you can make existentially, whether you can direct your fate in a completely different, uh, on a whole different longitude and latitude. And it's this film. Carry me? No. Why do I have to be a toy? Because you have Bonnie's name written on the bottom of your sticks. Why do I have Bonnie's name written on the bottom of my sticks? Because she... Look, she plays with you all the time, right? Uh, yes. And who does she sleep with every night? The big, white, fluffy thing? No, not her pillow. You. Uh. All right, Forky, you have to understand how lucky you are right now. You're Bonnie's toy. You are going to help create happy memories that will last for the rest of her life. Huh? What? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Doing it for Bonnie. Doing this for Bonnie. Doing it for Bonnie. Okay. Like it or not, you are a toy. Maybe you don't like being one, but you are one nonetheless, which means you are going to be there for Andy when he Who's Andy? I mean Bonnie. You have to be there for Bonnie. That is your job. Well, what's your job? Well, right now, it's to make sure you do yours. Carry me? No! So just in the same way that Frank Sheeran is loyal to Jimmy Hoffa, uh, Woody is loyal to Bonnie and, and Andy before Bonnie. Uh, Woody wonders whether he can make any other choice. Toy Story 4, David Edelstein, that's my movie of the year. Well, good on you. Good on you. <laughs> no, aren't you going to like, argue against that? Or you have to, you have to uh, say Colin, something? Uh, I have a confession to make. Yeah. You didn't see Toy which Story is- 4. I didn't. I mean, I didn't review the film this year, yeah. and <clears throat> this is what you were talking about. I think with the lighthouse, I, you know, I, I, I will see it. I will see it before the end of the year. But I didn't see it because I was legitimately angry that it existed. Um, Toy Story three to me was a beautiful piece of work. It ended the Toy Story saga. Um, it rounded it perfectly. I didn't feel like you know. Disney or Pixar had any business going back to the well. So I was I was biased against it. And now you're saying these things about it does make me want to go home and uh, 
unwrap my screener and and take a look at it. And thank you for that. Right. And that's you know what that's um, I, I'm not proud of that. I'm not proud of that 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 I would come into a film like that with uh, a great deal of bias. Um, well, we're I, you all know, human. I, you know, except well, for the I, toys. Yeah, but uh, critic, you know, you you go in and you say this is going to be the best Sylvester Stallone movie ever. Um, Cliffhanger you know, is the you... best. Cliffhanger is the best. <laughs> I like Cliffhanger. I do too. I like. You that. know why I like Cliffhanger? Why? Because not just as do all the bad guys die in a great deal of pain, yeah. but you see in their eyes an acknowledgement of the superiority. Of Sylvester Stallone. Right. And uh, actually, Demolition Man might be the best uh, Sylvester Stallone movie. <laughs> oh, Demolition well, Man's well, a great movie. <clears throat> we part ways there. But you know uh, what? <laughs> I'll give it another chance. You're turning right. me around here. You're turning me around right. here on a I lot should, of movies. I should also say that you referenced Lighthouse. This is this is, comes from our email exchanges. So I, I said that there, like, I, there should be a separate category of the movie that you deliberately didn't go see. So Bill Curry kept talking to me about how great he thought Lighthouse would be, and he wanted to go see Lighthouse. And you know, Curry's the kind of person who likes to sit up there and me by himself, you know, and look at the ocean. And I just couldn't, I, I really felt it was kind of an achievement to not have seen Lighthouse with Bill Curry. So that's like, I'm, I'm, I'm giving myself some kind of a negative award for that. That's the, that's the only. Okay. Uh, well, I, I came to it late. Again, I didn't review it. I, I have some wonderful uh, co-critics at vulture.com, which is New York Magazine's culture site. Um, and uh, Bilga Berry, Alison Wilmore, um, Angelica Jade Bastien, just to, just to name them. And uh, I didn't see it. I saw it late. Um, I kind of dreaded it because it sounded to me as if it was going to be just a sort of a monotonous one-note bombardment, two guys kind of going crazy in a vacuum for a hundred minutes with, with uh, you know, that that would just be at once sensory overload and uh, sensory deprivation on another level. And uh, it's interesting. When I saw the film, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> it's awful. It's awful. <laughs> it's one of the most unpleasant things I've ever seen in my life. I don't understand what people are talking about. And I like this guy's other movie pretty well, The Witch. Yeah. But this movie, this, this, it could be a parody I love Willem Dafoe, and Pattinson is in there working really hard. It's just why, why you, you know, you want to see these guys go colorfully crazy. I'd, I'd rather see Dafoe play Ahab. <laughs> All right, so are you making me feel even better about my choices, which is not the usual role you have in my life, but it's, <laughs> it's good. All right, we're going to take a quick break. David Edelstein, America's greatest living film critic, is with us today, doing the year in movies. We'll have a little bit of time on the other side of this. I'm standing on. All right, well, we're back with David Edelstein. Um, read his reviews in New York Magazine. Uh, and so on your top 10 list this year, you had a movie that I would put on my top 10 list too. And we were just talking about Demolition Man, uh, which brings to mind Wesley Snipes, uh, who's in a very different place these <laughs> days. So Dolomite Is My Name is the movie that we're making reference to. Or We'll hear a clip there. This is not a Wesley Snipes clip. You're going to hear Keegan-Michael Key as Jerry Jones, uh, a playwright, and Eddie Murphy as Rudy Ray Moore. We want this thing to be raw. Tell it like it is on the streets. Yeah, lots of pimps and hoes and cussing. 
and kung fu and karate. Brothers love all that kung fu and karate. Do you know karate? No, but I'm a fast learner. I can learn how to chop me a mother. Yeah, yeah, huh, yeah. You know what we should have? A all-girl kung fu army. Um, you know, there, there's there's plenty of story opportunity, Rudy. Across this nation, inner cities are being plagued by violent crime. I I, I feel the government hasn't stepped up. That's it. It's Whitey's fault. The mayor's corrupt, and there's an exorcism. God damn it, an exorcism. Yeah, you know all that who mothers in hell. Um, I don't know how that fits into our urban uh, motif. All right. I'm laughing all over again. So this is another one of these movies that exists on a screen for a little while so it can go to a streaming service. But those of us who were lucky enough to see it. No, again, it's again, it's Netflix. And by the way, you you should everybody should also uh, tune into Netflix and see American Factory, which is my choice for the best documentary of the year. But, yeah, this is a movie. Pardon me. Eddie Murphy makes his big comeback in theaters uh, for two weeks uh, at at a few theaters prior to this movie launching on Netflix. I don't, I don't know I don't know how I feel about this because this is a movie that really deserves a raucous audience. Uh, a screaming laughing audience. It's a it's a very it's a broad comedy written by um uh, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski who gave us Ed Wood and kind of have created this subgenre of the ironic biopic. In other words, it's they're biopics of people who um you know, in some cases are real scumbags <laughs> and in other cases are just people with absolutely no talent, but told in the sort of gee whiz Hollywood rags to riches or riches to rags to riches style of, you know, of the of the conventional, the historical biopics that used to win Oscars for Paul Mooney and and all these other people, Gandhi and <laughs> uh, Ben Kingsley, not Gandhi. Gandhi didn't actually win the Oscar. But um um, and it's just, it's just a wonderful, wonderful trip. And it does have, I mean, it does have some stuffing in it because the way that, um, Rudy Ray Moore invents himself, um, there is a character, this Dolomite character who he does not create from scratch, mm. but he asks around a lot of sort of homeless people. And, and there's this legend of, of a sort of a pimp, a libertine, uh, a big liar, uh, named Dolomite, and he assumes this role and becomes a, a folk hero all over again. That's a great story. It is a great story, and it is. It's the whole movie is just a joy and, and a delight, and kind of in a weird way, kind of a companion to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, in the sense that it's sort of evoking so, a specific yes. period, really, really, really carefully, and yes. a, and people making movies. So there are some movies that we haven't had a chance to see uh, here in Hartford, no matter what we do, that are making a lot of uh, top ten lists. Also, uh, Richard Jewell, one of those movies, is making news today because apparently yeah. Clint Eastwood depicts a relationship between a report and an FBI agent where the reporter is exchanging sex for information or tips or something uh, in a way that the Atlanta Constitution is not happy with. But uh, so I don't uh, blame them. Yeah. I don't blame them. And we don't we don't know if that happened. Uh, I certainly would not trust Clint Eastwood to tell us what happens because of his own biases, his own political biases. And this is another film. It's really, a, a, you know, it's well done at times, but it's, it's a shameful film. Just like his... Uh, his Sully was a shameful film um, because uh, 
this sort of unambiguous hero, this unambiguous, no one in the world disagreed about the heroism of Sully for landing, you know, a, uh, a plane in the middle of the Hudson River. Least of all, the NTSB, you know, the National Transit Safety Board. Mm. And yet because of his Eastwood sort of Ayn Rand anti-regulation bias, he invents this stupid you know, pernicious story. Um, the NTSB, again, not an ambiguous, they come in after fatal crashes or, or even non-fatal crashes and they say what's wrong. They're not political. They for, perform an essential function. And in this case, they ratified everything that Sully said. He was a little annoyed that he has had to go through the process, but he did. And it was completely uneventful, but the movie skews it so that he's going to lose his house and he might have be in the hole for all this money and he has to defend his honor and his reputation all because heroic individuals are constantly assailed by government agencies. I mean, this is just crap. And it's the stuff that Eastwood has been peddling for years and years and he has to distort the facts in order to peddle it. Everybody says, oh, he's our great, you know, American living director. You know, he's not. He's really a second rate mind. The uh, in the case of Richard Jewell, it is true though that as we were watching the uh, trailer came on the TV set the other night, and my significant other said, "Yeah, but he did it, right?" And I said, "No, he didn't do it. Eric Rudolph did oh, it." Oh no! Uh, and, the FBI, but, but, but people the forget was, people forget yeah. stuff like that. You time goes by, and Richard Jewell winds up lodged in people's heads as the guy who did it. Absolutely, and they're they're raging incompetence. The FBI agent who did this and who leaked this, and they deserve to be hauled up over the coals. But what Eastwood is going for is not just a few agents who leaked something in the middle of a. Uh, uh, he's going after basically um, the government agencies that are tasked with protecting us, and right now are coming under fire, the press and the FBI for. Um, you know, for what they're doing in the impeachment hearings. And it's no coincidence that Eastwood would make them the bugaboos of the boogeyman of this particular film. No coincidence whatsoever. All right. Unfortunately, we're, we've are we got like 90 seconds left here and we have so many things that we haven't talked about. I'll yeah. just say See Little Women yeah. when it comes out. Greta Gerwig is, is a hell of a director. It's a, it's a really lovely film. See American Factory. Um, Uncut Gems is a... Is, is a very intense film. I don't know what it add up, adds up to. This is the movie with Adam Sandler, who's having kind of an Sandler. interesting year because he was in that um, Noah Baumbach TV thing. Um, That's right. And suddenly Adam Sandler is kind of inherently less annoying than he used to be. It will it will blow you away, this movie. It's a very upsetting, nerve-jangling film, but he is, uh, man, this is the ultimate Adam Sandler role. As I said, it's been a really good year for, for movies outside of... Uh, the blockbuster system that is unfortunately crushing crushing so much else. Right. Well, Adam Sandler might be the last actor that you can't plausibly cast as a superhero. Maybe that's what's going to uh, save us. Uh, all right. So we have to stop there. But uh, David Edelstein, America's Greatest Living Film Critic, you can look at his top 10 list on the Vulture site of New York Magazine uh, and follow his reviews. And thanks again. It's so great to do this. Thank you so much, Colin. All right. And we'll be back next week. I'm thinking this is running Friday. I could be deceiving myself right now, but presumably it is, and we'll be back next week.